This morning we're going to be in John 19. John 19, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to John 19. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you surround us. And so many times we feel surrounded by our circumstances and our discouragements and heartbreaks and disappointments, but we choose to praise you this morning. And we thank you for the gift of your son. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us a greater understanding of your love for us. That we would know the height, the depth, the width of your love, your love that passes knowledge. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Where would we be without the cross of Jesus Christ? The cross of Christ means everything to us. Because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, we are forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. We are forgiven people this morning because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're saved because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We have a reservation in heaven. Gang, we're closer to heaven than we've ever been before. And some of you may be closer than others, right? You never know when we're going to enter into heaven. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we're adopted children. We're brought close. We're we're brought, brought into this great relationship with the Father. It's difficult to be able to describe in words how much the cross of Jesus Christ means to us. We're going to look unto Jesus and specifically look at his sacrifice that's recorded for us in John 19. In Hebrews 12, it tells us to look unto Jesus, to make Jesus our focus. I read to you, it says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we get to do that this morning. We get to look unto Jesus. So verse one of chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And Pilate decides to go ahead and have Jesus be whipped, have Jesus be beaten. The Romans are masters at torture. They're masters at at beatings. History tells us that they would use a cat of nine tails. It was a whip with with nine leather strips and tie into it all kinds of metal and shards and then begin to whip Christ. The beating would be so bad that the flesh off of his back would, would be ripped down to bone. Normally you would be tied with your hands above your head and the whip would reach around his chest uh, as well. Some were killed just from being scourged. A soldier would would beat someone so bad that they would bleed uh, to death. Isaiah 53, it prophesied the suffering of Christ and it says that by his wounds we are healed, by his stripes we are healed. And there's times in our lives where God does bring physical healing. Sometimes he chooses not to. But a lot of times the deepest hurt that we carry is what is internal. And by the stripes of Jesus, you're healed. He understands the wounds that are going on in our hearts and and in our lives. Just before service, I was talking with a guy from our church that's going through a really hard time and was able to pray with him and 
He was in tears because of the suffering that he was going through. And I know that many of you are hurting this morning, that any, many of you carry deep wounds, and it's by Jesus' stripe that we're healed. He turned his back for us so that we can be confident that he's never going to turn his back on us. In verse 2, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands, so mocking Christ. You're claiming to be the King of Kings. You're claiming to be the King of the Jews, so here's your crown, a crown of thorns. And in Israel, they do have large thorns. So these are like nails going into the, the head of Christ. Each detail is significant in Scripture. We know that part of the curse, when Adam and Eve fell, the curse of sin, was thorns, weeds. It's difficult to be able to grow things. With all the rain that we've had here in Colorado this summer, the weeds are very healthy, aren't they? I'm looking forward to heaven where there's no weeds, right? So Christ taking on this crown of thorns is symbolizing that he's taking on the curse of sin so that we could enjoy the sweetness of forgiveness. They placed this purple robe upon Christ with him being beaten so bad, no doubt this robe is just sticking to his body. And then they begin to strike him. They begin to hit him with with their hands. Verse four, Pilate then went out again and said to them, behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I have found no fault in him. Pilate continues to emphasize that he finds no fault in Jesus. I'm just gonna get this cough out because it's there, so just talk amongst yourselves. (coughs) (coughs) Ah, There we go. Hopefully it's all done. So verse five, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. So brings out Christ before this multitude. Now the multitude gets to, to mock Christ, and Jesus says, behold the man. I think it's significant that Pilate says, behold the man. He probably didn't realize what he was saying, but Jesus is God. He's deity, but he's also man. He's the God-man. And in his humility came in human flesh. In his humility is put on trial. In his humility and his love for us is beaten. And we behold the man. We behold the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The ultimate man, the God-man who provides forgiveness for us. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Absolute hatred. You'd think maybe there would be a little bit of compassion. Christ has been beaten. Maybe someone would say, okay, that's, that's enough. But instead, it's just more hatred. They're more solidified in their desire for Christ to be killed. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Which law is that? Where's the chapter and verse on that one? Saying we've got a law that because he claimed uh, to be God, he needs to be crucified. Well, there's another possibility. He is God. This is not a, a false claim. This is a justified claim. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. This tension that's going on in Pilate's heart, where I think deep down he wants to release Christ. He knows that Christ is innocent, but he feels this pressure from the religious leaders. He feels this pressure from the chief 
priest and he feels himself more and more being in the rock in a hard place and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus where are you from but Jesus gave him no answer at this point Christ is simply silent in Isaiah 53 verse 7 it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears is silent so he opened not his mouth Christ's silence is his submission to the cross. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Pilate seems to be offended. Now you're not talking to me? Don't you know that I've got the power to release you or I have the power to to crucify you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus says, look, Pilate, you would have no power unless it was granted to you from the Father. It was granted to you from above. And we need to remember this. You know, any responsibility, any influence that God has given you in your life, it is truly a gift from the Lord. It's not that you earn it, that you deserve it. It's the Lord has granted this this position. The Psalms tells us that the Lord sets one aside and raises up another. And Pilate's in this position because God wants him to be there. Jesus says something interesting at the end of verse 11, that those who delivered Jesus into Pilate's hands have the greater sin, the greater uh, responsibility. They're the ones that are really pushing forward this, this death. In verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. They use the boss card. Pilate is responsible to Caesar, who's over the the Roman Empire. Pilate's job is to try to keep peace between the Roman Empire and Israel. And they're saying, look, if you don't punish this man who claims to be king, then Caesar's going to be upset with you. The boss is going to be upset with you. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Pilate comes to the seat where he would pronounce judgment. Jesus stands in a place of judgment so that we could stand in a place of forgiveness. Here comes the verdict. Now it was the preparation day of Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, "'Behold your king.'" As Christ is on trial, they're preparing for the Passover. They're preparing the lambs for the slaughter. And Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the fulfillment of the Passover feast. Verse 15, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. This is not how they truly felt. They didn't accept Caesar as a king. They were wanting freedom from Caesar's reign, his tyranny over them, but they say it at this moment to try to get their way. Verse 16, then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then he took Jesus and led him away. Pilate makes a decision to turn Jesus over to be crucified. What's unfortunate about Pilate is he didn't really follow his true heart conviction, and that was to release Christ. And he was pressured into rejecting Christ because he wanted to please the chief priests. He wanted to 
please this angry multitude. I wonder how many people have made that same mistake where God's doing a work in their life. They're coming to the understanding of who Jesus is. They want to trust him for salvation. They want Jesus to be their savior. But yet they know, hey, this isn't going to fly with my family. Maybe this isn't going to fly with my spouse. This isn't going to fly with the group of friends that I hang out with. And so they choose to reject Christ. And if you're in that boat, in that camp this morning, I would encourage you, it is worth it to trust Christ. It is so worth it to be in that place of saying, yes, Jesus, you're God. I'm sure if Pilate were here and able to share with us this morning, he would say, man, I made the wrong decision. I let the pressure of people convince me about something with Jesus that I truly didn't have in my own heart, and he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 17, and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. They take Christ to the place of the skull. And there's been a lot of speculation about this. I mean, I think when you go to Jerusalem, everybody wants to know exactly where Jesus was crucified. And I don't know that we can say with absolute certainty that we know the exact place that Christ was, was crucified. And there's, there is a hill, a ridge, where there's a, a rock formation and it looks like a skull. And so because of that, some people go, well, Jesus must have died there. And that must have why the place was called the skull. And that could be true. There could have been a rock that, that looked like a skull, and so they called it the skull. And on the top of that hill, that's where Christ was, was crucified. But also, too, doesn't it make absolute sense that this is the place of execution? And the Romans would let people, their corpses, just rot on the cross. And there was probably skulls that were gathered around here where people were crucified. It was a statement of, don't mess with the Roman Empire. And so it could have gotten its name for that as well. We get fixed in on the place, but the place is not important. The important is that Christ died for our sins. And he went to this horrible place of torture to free us from our sins. In verse 18, when they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center, they crucified him. They crucified Christ. They took him to this cross and nailed into his hands and nailed into to his feet. And here he is hanging upon the cross. And from what I understand, the, the physical torture of the cross would be that you would have to push up on your legs and pull up on your arms in order to get breath into your lungs. And eventually your arms would give way, your feet would, would give way. And remember, Christ has already been brutally beaten. He's already stayed up all night and prayed to the point where he was, was sweating blood. And many times to speed this up, as we'll see, they would break the legs of the person being crucified. Why? Because they can't push themselves up on their legs anymore to get breath into their lungs. And then eventually you would suffocate to death. And, and Christ is crucified for our sins. He's dying upon the cross for, for our sins. And what the Bible teaches us is that the power of the blood of Jesus, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That our sin required for Christ to die, for Christ to bleed, in order that we could be forgiven by God. In order for God to be just, he has to punish sin. 
God would not be just if he just said, well, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. You know, this is what happens. Sinners sin and there's no, no punishment for sin. And so Christ is punished for our sin by being crucified so that we could be forgiven. On either side, you have criminals, one on his right and his left, that are being crucified with Jesus. Isaiah 53, this foundational prophecy of the suffering of Christ, tells us that they made his grave with the wicked. So here he's identified with the wicked in his crucifixion. Two responses to Christ. One of the criminals mocked Christ, rejected Christ, but the other turned to Jesus and said, today when you enter into your father's house, will you remember me? Jesus said, yes. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It shows the nature of salvation, that the salvation is a free gift of grace that we don't earn or deserve, that we receive through faith. And the gift is so sufficient in and of itself that it provides salvation without our works. <laughs> this man never had the opportunity to go to church. He never had the opportunity to get baptized. He wasn't in a new believers class. He never wrote a tithe check or got on the church's website and did some online giving. None of that was in place in his life. He never texted his mom and said, you'll, you'll never believe it. Jesus died for my sins. Some would look at this and go, this is scandalous. How is it that this guy got to go to heaven? If you were to look at his life compared to other people's lives, they'd go, he wasn't even a good person because he believed in Jesus. And the sacrifice of Jesus was enough to save him from his sins. And as we trust Christ for salvation and we receive this amazing grace that cleanses us from all of our sins, we do respond. Jesus lives in us and changes our lives. And there are good works that flow through our lives, but it's not to earn or deserve salvation. In verse 19, now Pilate wrote... A title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so that everyone could read and understand that Jesus is the King of the Jews. The message is clear Christ's sacrifice is for all people. The sacrifice of Jesus is written in all languages. It should be written for every tongue, tribe, every language. In the heart of a believer, there's no room for prejudice. You should never be able to attach the name of God, the name of Jesus, to prejudice. It makes no sense because God created all of us. We're all created in his image. Jesus died for everyone. His love is written and declared in every language. In verse 21, therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Like, this makes us angry. Don't put that he's the king of the Jews, just put that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, but Pilate says, it's too late. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us tear it, but let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, 
and from my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. This is a fulfillment of Psalms 22. Isn't it amazing how all of this is prophesied in the Old Testament? Even to the detail that they were gonna cast lots, they were gonna gamble over Christ's garment. I'm sure their logic was Jesus is famous, and so we're gonna try to have this garment in one piece. Maybe we'll be able to, to sell it later. But what amazes me is they're so close to the proximity of the crucifixion of the Son of God. They're right there. They're the ones that are nailing Jesus to the cross. They're the ones that are hearing what Christ is saying from from the cross. If they're paying attention, there had to have been something inside of them that said, you know what? There's something different about this guy. We do know from the centurion that the soldier that was the boss at the end of the crucifixion of Christ, he said, truly, this man is the the son of God. But it does show that you can be very close to the cross of Jesus Christ in proximity, but be playing games at the foot of the cross and not stop and consider and look up and realize the grace that is being shown you, the the grace that's being shown me. Be right there at the foot of the cross, but only be concerned with your own motivation. And that was really my story growing up in a Christian home. My parents were the first ones saved in their family, really devoted to Christ. When the church was open, we were there, and I wasn't interested, right? To me, it was a bunch of rules and regulations. I went to a Christian school. I knew all of the stories. It was Charlie Brown's own. Wah, 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 wah. It's like, really? We got to go to church again, right? I would tell my parents things like, the dumbest thing you could do with your life is be a pastor. God's got a sense of humor on that one, right? But I was so close to the proximity of the crucifixion of Christ. How many people grow up and never hear about Jesus? How many people grow up in in a home where they have no idea who Jesus is, but here I am with a hard heart uh, towards Christ. And thankfully, God in his grace, when I was a freshman in high school, really revealed his love to me and communicated to me, Eric, when you want nothing to do with me, I wanted everything to do with you. And it was the love of God, the grace of God, that really transformed and changed my life. And maybe you're playing games at the foot of the cross. Maybe you come here and say, the only reason I'm here is to get my spouse off my back. You know, I, I enjoy the free coffee that they give away in the foyer. Be blessed. Have as much free coffee as you want in the foyer, right? But stop and consider and go, really, what's the motivation of my heart? And have I, have I looked up to see that Jesus died for me? Have I looked up to consider that his blood was shed for me? If these soldiers would have just paused and stopped and and looked up. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. There's seven sayings of Christ while he was on the cross. If you read the four gospel accounts, and this is one of them. As Christ is being crucified, it'd be difficult to breathe, difficult to speak. Every saying, every sentence that he declared is is so rich in meaning. 
He looks at his mom who is in agony. What a painful moment for Mary as she's watching her son be crucified. They're not aware of the resurrection. It hasn't registered in their hearts and and in their minds. In Jesus' darkest hour, as he's being punished for our sins, crucified, he's considering the needs of his mom. He's putting other people's needs before his own. And he says, Mom, behold your son. And look, behold your mother. And John adopted Mary as his own mom, John the disciple, from this moment moving forward. The true bond, don't you think that Mary and John the disciple were bonded in a deep way as they shared this moment watching the crucifixion of Jesus? The greatest bond that we can have in human relationship is when we're bonded at the foot of the cross. When two people look up to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my Lord, thank you so much for dying for me, that's going to be the strongest bond. Some of you have experienced that. You have a a stronger bond with a brother or sister in Christ than maybe your own biological family because they don't know Christ as their Savior. And then the strongest bond that we can have inside of our biological family is the blood of Jesus Christ. The, The sacrifice of Christ binds us together. In verse 18, after this, Jesus, knowing all things that were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it in his mouth. Psalms 69 verse 21 is the fulfillment of this, where Christ crying out, uh, I thirst. We have this paradox of the one who is living water and provides living water is thirsty. And there has to be tremendous physical thirst that Christ was experiencing. But I think he's also expressing the spiritual thirst that he was going through. If you look at the order of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, what Jesus said just prior to this was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's think about that for just a moment. Why would Jesus say that in that moment upon the cross? There's the physical suffering of Christ, and please understand this, but we also have the spiritual suffering of Christ upon the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our sin. A big Bible word that we never use in everyday language is propitiation. Just try that out at the dinner table and see how that goes. What does it mean to appease the wrath of? Jesus is taking on the wrath of the Father. And in that moment, he's separated in fellowship from the Father. And he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then right after that, he says, I thirst. He's physically thirsty, but what he's really longing for is fellowship with the Father. The fellowship that he's enjoyed for eternity past. The fellowship that he's going to enjoy in the future for all of, of eternity. In verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his his spirit. He cries out, it is finished. It's the last thing that he says, that he declares. And then he declares, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He dismisses his his spirit. This word, it is finished, in the Greek is tetelestai. They found receipts on papyra with the same phrase, when you had paid your taxes. 
Tetelestai, paid in full. And what Jesus is declaring is paid in full. It is finished. The work for your salvation is finished. I hope you understand if you trust Christ as your savior, you're not working for salvation. It's already completed. Christ finished the work for you. If your mentality is, well, well, I believe in Jesus, but I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to be this. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we can't save ourselves. There's nothing that we could do. We don't have that power. We don't have that capacity. Jesus does something for us that we could never do for ourselves and he dies for our sin. He rises again to all who believe and receive this free gift are saved. It is finished. You trusted Christ. Wow. How many things in life are we constantly working for and towards? You think relationally. You're always investing relationally, right? Got to continue to press into relationships. Yesterday, I was working around the house, and it was just one of those days where it seemed like the projects at the house will never end. It'll never be finished. And that's true. They won't. On this side of heaven, I'll never be able to sit in my house and go, Tay till I die. <laughs> right? It is finished. And I was working on this drawer that had broken our kitchen and fixing, fixing this drawer. And the first 50% of that project went really good. And I was telling Amber, I'm really enjoying this. This is fun. And then it slipped to Hades, right? Just... <laughs> went south on me and then I had to wrestle with it and struggle with it and I was thinking about this message and how wonderful it is to have something finished and have the most important thing finished and it's the work for our salvation so Christ dies in verse 31 therefore because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath was the high day The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. With wanting to fulfill uh, the Sabbath, they're wanting the bodies off of the cross. And so they asked for the legs to be broken to speed up crucifixion, but Christ had already passed away. The soldier wants to confirm the death of Christ. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came forth. Blood and water is a sign of life. When a baby's born, there's blood and there's water. And here the bride of Christ has been born from the sacrifice of of Jesus. John gives us his commentary, John the disciple here in verses 35 through 37. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he who knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they looked on him whom they pierced. John says, I have seen this and it's true. And I'm testifying it to you so that you might believe and have life in his name. Also, there's this testimony of Old Testament prophecy that's been fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. It's prophesied in Exodus 12 that the bones of the Passover lamb should not be broken, and that's fulfilled in Jesus. Zechariah 12 tells us to look on the one whom they've pierced and, and believe in Christ is pierced, his side is pierced. 
We look at the burial of Christ. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a follower of Christ, but in private, because he's scared of the persecution of the Jews. But what brought him out of hiding? The crucifixion of Jesus. He's like, man, my Savior, my Lord is on the cross. I can't sit at home in safety while the body of my Lord is upon the cross. And so he goes and he asks for permission to get the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, that's recorded for us in John 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 100 pounds. This would be a very expensive ointment to place upon the body of Christ. Myrrh was brought as a gift by the wise men when Jesus was young, signifying his death and his burial. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews, is to bury. A really difficult part of of death is the is the process of burial or the process of cremation. As I have the opportunity to do a lot of funerals, it's always the hardest part when it gets to that moment where they're going to see the body of their loved one for the last time. And I can't imagine for Joseph and Nicodemus, can you, getting Jesus down off of the cross and him beaten so badly and crucified, having to wrap his body in linen, not knowing that this is going to lead to the resurrection of Christ and they bury Christ. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Weren't able to give Jesus' body the proper burial that they wanted to because of the coming of the Sabbath. So that's why we find the women coming back to the tomb on Sunday morning and wanting the stone to be removed so that they could give Jesus' body the proper burial. Now guys, you got to come back next week, right? Because the best is yet to come, right? We're going to study the resurrection. Christ did not stay in the tomb. One of the things that has been on my heart for a while that I've been praying for in my life and in my family and our church and throughout our community and even our country is that there would be an awakening to the love of God, an awakening to the love of God. From what I've studied of spiritual revivals that have taken place and the great awakening that took place in our our country is that there was an awakening to the love of God. Those people's eyes were being opened to the reality that God loves me, that God loves me, that he loves me, he loves me, he died for me. My my sins are, are forgiven. And I think even for us as believers, we need to be awakened to the love of God. Paul has an interesting prayer for the church of Ephesus and their believers who are doing well and he prays for them that they would know the height and the depth and the width of God's love, that they would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And you'd think that doesn't make sense. They already know the love of God. They're already believers. Why would he be praying this? Because he knows, he knew something about the church of Ephesus 
that they weren't living in the fullness of God's love. (laughs) That there needed to be a fresh experience in the church of Ephesus when it came to the love of God. That they would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And that could only come through prayer. See, I can't preach into you the love of God and have it resonate in your soul in a way that passes knowledge. It's not possible, right? I can't necessarily just preach that into my own soul. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is communicating to you that you're loved by God. So my prayer, especially as we have gone through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that you would know that you're loved by God without a shadow of a doubt that God loves you so much that he gave his son for you. And you say, well, Eric, you sound like you're talking to unbelievers. And I am, but I'm talking to believers. (laughs) Paul also says in Romans chapter eight, he says, I am fully persuaded, I am fully convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. He wasn't preaching to other people. In his own life, in his own understanding of God and who God is in his life, he says, I know the love of God and I know nothing can separate me from from the love of God. God has me, he loves me, he's shown that to me on the cross. And I believe real change happens in our lives and our families and in our communities as we know the love of God. What is so needed in our community to know the love of God? That's what's needed. It's the love of God. And as we live in God's love and we experience the the love of God, then that transforms us and it changes us and we want to go share the good news of the love of Jesus Christ. It's not a have to, it's a want to. It's like, man, I can't believe that God loves me, but I also can't believe that God loves the person next to me. If God loves me, that means that God loves you. And and I want to share that goodness of the love of God. So may the love of God go off in your heart like a bomb this morning. And as we've read of the crucifixion of Christ, may it not be like an old hat or stale bread. There's some hats that I have at home. I seem to collect hats. And I've got some hats that I like. And then I've got some hats that I don't really care about. And when the kids go, hey, can I have that hat? Sure, go ahead, right? It's an old hat. It's just in the closet. And unfortunately, the love of God can be like that. Oh, it's an an old hat. You know, sometimes bread, it sits around for a while and it's not quite as appetizing. It's gotten a little stale. It's gotten a little stiff. It's not quite moldy. But then there's fresh bread that comes right out of the oven. There's that fresh bread when you're the first one to Panera Bread and you get the first round of bagels. Then they're giving them away at the end of the day, right? You know, it's because the bagel's been sitting there, there all day. And is that what the love of God is like to us? You know, when we read through this this morning, it's like, oh yeah, this is kind of old hat. Jesus died for my sins. (sighs) When are we going to get to the deeper stuff, right? I can't believe he went through 42 verses that quickly. I would have loved to, slow down on camp on some of this more, but I also think it's good sometimes to just read it and let it sink in. I was really close this weekend to just reading this chapter and saying nothing. 
and just letting it resonate of the sacrifice of Jesus. So I'm going to leave you with these two verses, and then we're going to pray and close. I want you to maybe just close your eyes and bow your head and just listen to it. Listen to these promises of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the good news that you love sinners, that you died for sinners. Amazing grace that we couldn't earn it, we couldn't deserve it, but you gave it to us. Lord, for those that don't know you, we pray this morning would be the morning that they would see their need for your sacrifice and receive that free gift through faith. For those that are believers, God, would you awaken us to the love of God in a way that can't be done by our own efforts. A work of the Spirit, a move of the Spirit. Father, would you be gracious right now, even in this moment, to take us deeper into the love of God? May we, like Paul, be fully convinced that we are loved by you. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.